Good morning, good morning, good morning. It's time to rise and shine. Let's make our way back to our seats. Hey, I'll make a deal with you guys. I'll make a deal, but you got to hear the deal. Are you ready? I won't preach very long if you want to carry these conversations after service, okay? I'll make space for you to have connection time after service. No, I really I love it. The energy in the room is tangible. Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan Swindle. I'm the worship and executive pastor here at New Life Midtown. Thank, thank, thank you for that unsolicited, I might say. Yeah. Our senior pastors, Jade and Christy Duncan, are on sabbatical, and I am blessed to be able to preach a series four out of the next five weeks to you on the book of Ruth. But before we jump into that, uh, I have a couple of announcements, and these are very important, okay? All the ladies in the house, Kindred, which Kindred is the name of our women's ministry, that's not self-explanatory, so I figured I should share. Kindred is having their third quarter gathering on November the 13th at 9 a.m. And as you can see, it is pancakes and pajamas. Or if you're from the South like myself, you say pajamas. Yes. So pancakes and pajamas, please register, ladies. It's going to be a blast. It's a quarterly event. So this is our quarter three. Well, this is their quarter three. I will not be there. This is their quarter three event. Please register. Also, two weeks from yesterday, we will be having our marriage weekend with pastors Brent and Janice Sharp. Brent and Janice Sharp have been pastors and marriage and family therapists, and they run uh, a marriage and family therapy clinic in the city of Tulsa, Oklahoma, for more than 35 years. We had them here a little over two years ago. And they will be back in two weekends from now. So couples, if you haven't had a chance to register yet, please do so. Of course, there are many good reasons, like being sick or out of town, that you can't be here. That's fine. But one reason to not not sign up is that you've been married too long. Okay? I know that was really confusing, but I wanted to pique your curiosity. It's easy to think of marriage conferences or marriage seminars as being for people who are brand new to being married because they don't know anything. My 10-year anniversary is here this year, and I want to tell you something. I don't know anything about being married. <laughs> Actually, that's not true. I know a lot because Pastor Brent and Janice have counseled us, and that's been great. So, yes, it doesn't matter how long you've been married. They speak about these weekends like a marriage tune-up. So we all know that our cars need regular tune-ups and our relationships need regular practices and things that will help us to continue on for the long haul. So that's my pitch for the marriage weekend. I hope you will be here with us. It is Saturday, November 6th, 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Lunch is included. And if money is a deterrent, please contact myself or Martha and we, we don't want finances to be the deterrent for you not coming. Lastly, if you are new here with us at New Life Midtown, welcome. We hope that you feel welcome, whether today is your first Sunday, if you've been here for a few weeks. Immediately following this service, we are going to be hosting New Life Next, right through those doors in our multi-purpose room. New Life Next 
is a monthly event that we have for people who are seeking a new church, and they might want to meet some of us, hear some of the story. So we want to meet you and hear some of your story, and we want to share a little bit about this church, about how New Life Midtown came into existence, some of the ministries that we offer, and what some of the philosophy and theology is that goes behind the decisions we make, our values, the things that are important to us. Lunch is provided, so if that applies to you, uh, we would prefer that you register. At this point, it might not matter, uh, but it would help us if you just hopped on the website real quick. It would take you about 90 seconds to do it. It's immediately following the service. All right, the announcements are done. We can all have fun now. Let's... So I'm starting a series today on the book of Ruth. Ruth and I are tight, and here's why. Ruth, by the way, is a book in the Old Testament. Ruth is not a person. I'm not, I have no friends other than Ruthie who is two years old or three years old. Uh, but Ruth and I are tight because when I was working on my MDiv at ORU, I had to take a Hebrew class. And that Hebrew class was at 7 a.m. on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Sound like a blast to anyone? The final exam for my second semester in Hebrew was the professor told us to bring paper and she gave us the Hebrew translation of one of the four chapters in the book of Ruth. And our final exam was to translate said chapter from Hebrew into English. So Ruth and I are real tight. <laughs> I don't remember much from that exam. I remember I got an A, so I must have faked it really, really well. But the book of Ruth, I'm genuinely excited about teaching a four-week series in the book of Ruth. Ruth has four chapters, and Ruth is a story. It's a really simple story with some complex context. Ooh. That was interesting to say. Complex context behind that I'm going to do my best to unpack today so that we don't have to do that every week, uh, four of the next five weeks. And it's a story, like I mentioned, which is drastically different from the series on Galatians we just went through. And then prior to that, we had a series from the book of Proverbs, which is unique in and of itself. So we're, we're not accustomed specifically in this house, <clears throat> in this expression, this church, of teaching through these Old Testament stories as much as we are the Gospels, the Book of Psalms, and some of the, the New Testament epistles, the letters. But I believe as Westerners in the 21st century, we're going to do just fine because we are so accustomed to hearing stories. At no point in history are there more stories being told. I mean, think about movies. Movies were not a thing a hundred years ago. Books were a thing, but they weren't near as prevalent as they are now. Now, of course, telling stories has always been a human pastime, but it's never been as prevalent, and we've never had access to the amount of stories that we do now. So I think that we're actually primed to really understand and immerse ourselves in the story of Ruth. But I also want to make the argument that though it is called the book of Ruth, I think the story is more centered around Naomi than it is the story of Ruth. So for those who this may be brand new to, maybe you're brand new to the faith, you haven't spent much time reading the Bible, no problem. This morning I'm going to do my best to unpack the story to where anyone can understand it. And we're also going to fully read each chapter that the corresponding message is with for the next couple of weeks. So today we're going to read the entirety of the chapter of chapter one uh, from the book of Ruth. 
A little bit of context, just setting up the story. So the book of Ruth is written about, contextually, Ruth is the great-grandfather to King David. So that's where it's situated in the story, the historical timeline, the people of Israel. But it wasn't written until hundreds of years later. At earliest, 150 years later, but it quite possibly could have been three, 400 years later. Most scholars believe that it was written during the exilic period. The exilic period is when the people of Israel are no longer in their homeland. They're in exile from their land. And a lot of the books in the Old Testament were actually written in that time or even the post-exilic time. And part of what we need to hear is that when the people of Israel were in exile, they're doubting the promises and the character and the hope that comes with following Yahweh, their God. Man, it is cold up here today. It is, I am going to be alive. You guys are warm? We should switch places. I'll go back there and preach. Oh, okay. <clears throat> this is the difference between me and Pastor Jade. You will never hear him say that, ever, that it is cold on stage. But... So when they're in the exile, a lot of the, the, the stories that are being written are being written purposefully with a theological purpose to remind them of the character of God and who God has been throughout the ages of the people of Israel. So they're purposely writing the story with such a bend to, as to emphasize the character and the nature of God to remind them that God is the God who fulfills his promises. Even if it looks like he's not, God will always bring his promises to fulfillment. So there are three themes that I want to hit and uh, point out right now about the book of Ruth before we jump in. And these are themes that are going to go throughout the whole book. So they're applicable for the whole series. Number one, the primary most overt theme in the book of Ruth is hospitality toward outsiders and women hospitality toward outsiders and women. The book of Judges comes immediately before, prior to the book of Ruth, and Judges, the last chapter of the book of Judges, ends in great tragedy. It ends with rape, with stealing, and with the ultimate degradation of women. And then immediately following comes the book of Ruth, where two women who other than the fact that they are central in this story, are societally unimportant, they are vulnerable, and yet in the story they are elevated to being the central characters of the story. And throughout the story, Ruth and Naomi are the heroes of the story. Now, as amazing as this is to us now, 2,000 years ago, this would have been mind-blowing. And 4,000 years ago, this was unheard of. So the author of the book of Ruth is doing something very purposeful by elevating women and by this book being placed immediately after the end of the book of Judges, which, like I said, ends tragically with the degradation of women. There is a stark contrast picture being painted here, and we would do well to notice it. Judges reveals Israel's overall failure to keep the law. Now, if you read the book of Judges, it is one of the most violent and tragic books in the entire Bible. The book of Judges tells the story of 
people who were raised up as judges over the people of Israel. And by and large, what ends up happening is there is a faithful, righteous judge who does a little bit of good, followed by a terrible, evil judge who undoes it all and then some. And there is this pendulum of following God in righteousness, living by the law, and following and, and denying God and living according to the desires of the flesh and leading the people of Israel down that path. And Judges oscillates back and forth, back and forth, and it ends in a terrible place. But it's by and large also, and man, I've said that phrase a few times now, it starts and emphasizes the point from the perspective of the Judges the people who are in power, the people who their decisions affect everyone else. So it's like a macro picture and a macro telling of the story of the people of Israel for that time period. And then we have Ruth, which is the opposite. Ruth is a micro story of a small, relatively unimportant group of people from a very small, otherwise, especially until this time, unimportant city of Bethlehem doing things that don't seem like they're a very big deal, but they're being faithful to God and faithful to one another. So Judges paints the picture of what happens when people fail to follow the law and all the implications for the people of God. And then Ruth shows a beautiful little picture of a small group of people being faithful to God, faithful to one another, following the law, and how it actually can have huge benefits for the people of God even though they don't see it happening right before their eyes. So the first theme is hospitality toward outsiders and women. The second is God's work and human responsibility. In this story, if you pay careful attention, we're going to read all four chapters in service over the next five weeks of this series. God is mentioned a lot, but there are a few caveats. One, God himself never speaks in the book. Two, the narrator very rarely mentions God. God's name is mentioned primarily in conversation between characters in the story. And most of what they say about God and God's faithfulness and God's activity comes true in the book through their own work. I want to say that again. God's activity, the things they profess and proclaim about God, and the things that they pray for and bless one another in the name of God often happen when they are working with their hands and speaking with their mouths. So there is a blessing in here where one, one character says to another that the Lord would bless them and keep them secure and safe. And it actually ends up happening through the actions of one of the other characters in the story. And over and over, this is how God acts in the book of Ruth. And for us, so often, if you listen to our prayers, they tell on us that what we really, really want most often is for God to supernaturally intervene. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. I pray prayers like that. I'm sure most of us in the room do. But the way that God acts most of the time is through the faithfulness of his people to his other people on their behalf. It's when I act faithfully on Ron's behalf, God is working in Ron's life. And that is true throughout Scripture more often than not. And in the book of Ruth, it is holistically true that everything attributed to God except for two things, one of those 
is the ending of a famine by bringing up food, and the other is the opening of a womb and the conception of a child. And both of those things also require human participation. Right? So even the two things that are explicitly devoted to God's activity still require his people to be involved. That's good news for us. That means that what God wants to do to the person sitting next to you might very well involve you. And what you're asking God for, for your own life, for your family, for your business, for your school, might happen through the people around you whom you least expect to be used by God. The third, so the first is hospitality toward outsiders and women. The second is God's work and human responsibility. The third is tragedy and unfortunate circumstances. The story of Ruth doesn't have a traditional antagonist. Bear with me. Every good story has an antagonist, someone to create conflict. In Ruth, the antagonist is the circumstantial tragedy that befalls the women in the first chapter. It's a story of unlikely everyday people responding to one another after tragedy in ways that are faithful and good for one another. So tragedy, unfortunately, in this story is a huge part of the story. For Naomi, there is a famine. So she leaves her land. As a refugee, she is displaced. She loses her husband. She loses both of her sons. Then she has a long, unsafe journey, three women without any men to accompany them back to their homeland. That is a lot of problem, a lot of struggle, a lot of difficulty, a lot of tragedy, all in the first chapter of this story. We're not going to rush through it. And today, for all of my optimists, don't worry, this message is going to end well. And the book ends beautifully. But I don't think it's wise for us to rush through, to skip over all the tragedy. I actually think that's one of the problems that we have in our society. So today, we're actually going to talk about how to posture ourselves open to God in the midst of difficulty in our lives. So let's read Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. We're going to read the first six verses and then we'll pause, or the first five verses and then pause. In the days when the judges ruled, that's a key phrase, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. And they went to Moab and they lived there. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other named Ruth. And after they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilion also died. Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Now the first verse, I want to hone in here on Ruth 1.1, and I want to contrast it with the last verse from the book of Judges. Ruth 1.1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Now, let's go back. Now, if you have a physical Bible and Ruth starts on the right page, just look to your left. Just move your eyes a few inches over to the left. 
the last verse in the book of Judges ends, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Now, I've already stressed the point that these books are put together, they are juxtaposed together on purpose to tell a story. Judges tells the story of what happens when people live for themselves rather than living according to God's will for Jewish and Christian community. Ruth begins by telling what happens. There's famine in the land. Now, the book of Ruth does not draw any conclusions about how or why any of the negative things that happen do. This is part of the difference between Ruth and, let's say, Job, where there is philosophizing as, well, why would God allow these things to happen? Ruth does none of that. But it is almost certain that what the author of the book of Ruth is trying to point out is when people live for themselves, even Bethlehem, which means, does anybody know what the word Bethlehem means? Charlie does, yeah. House of bread. The house of bread will even experience famine when people live for themselves. Now, I'm not literally making the statement that the reason there was famine is God was cursing. I'm not saying any of that. What I am saying is that literarily, this is what they're wanting us to see. They're wanting us to see that when people live for themselves, even God's people will experience lack. But when we live for one another, what we will experience is the abundant provision of God through the people of God one to another. Amen? So let's keep reading here. So what, what else happens? So all three men die. And then here, uh, about halfway through chapter one, Naomi is now left with her two daughters-in-law. So all the men are gone and there's, she is an Israelite and the two, uh, two daughters-in-law are Moabite women. And what happens to them is what the whole rest of the book is about. So let's read verses six through 14 together. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living, Moab, and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Here, that's one of the circumstances where I'm talking about someone praying slash blessing someone else, and it's going to come through their actions. It's pretty astounding to look at. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again, and then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. So what happens here in this passage we've just read? Well, Naomi instructs them to turn back, and Orpah and Ruth both at first resist, but then the more that Naomi pushes back, Orpah says, okay, I will go home, 
But Ruth continues to resist. And it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There weren't any cultural obligations that she would have had to her. So why, first of all, is Naomi pushing back for her to go home? Why doesn't she want the accompaniment of her daughter-in-laws? Well, there's probably a couple of things that we can speculate to be true. The first is, like I said, they didn't have any obligation. And she realizes that she has been displaced from her homeland, from Judah to Moab, for all of these years. And she recognizes how difficult it has been for her. And she did it with a husband. So now if these women come back, her, they're not in their homeland. They're being displaced, and they don't have husbands. She's likely not sure how they're going to be welcomed in her homeland. So there's a way in which she's really looking out for these women. But I think that there is also an equally important reason that she likely is urging them to go home. And that is because they remind her of all that she has lost. They remind her of all that went wrong, of a failed season in Moab. And I think for many of us in the room, there is the human propensity to want to distance ourselves from the people, the places, the objects that might remind us of rough seasons of life. Is that true for anyone? It's true for myself, I can assure you that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I'm not, I'm not condemning that. I think that's a human response. Whether it's just a season of loss circumstantially or it's because we made foolish decisions and really bad things happened because of it. The human propensity is to elevate the things that we're proud of, the things we're happy about, the things we're excited about, and to diminish and resist and try and distance ourselves from the things that remind us of the difficulties and the pains in life. The downside is we cannot ever get away from our story. It's our story. But the good news is that we serve a God who changes what our story can become. We serve a God who is, as we would say theologically, who is creative. Well, when we think of creativity, we think of doing something really unique. God's creativity is unlike our creativity. We serve a God who brings something out of nothing. There's a passage in Isaiah says he gives beauty for ashes. What are ashes? Quite literally, ashes are something from which all resource has been exhausted. There is nothing left in ashes. You can't even burn them. Ashes are what's left when everything else has been burned. And God gives beauty for ashes. That which we look at and we see no resource at all. It looks to us like it's only bad, that there's not, there's not even a twinkle of good in it. God gives beauty for ashes. We serve a God who raises the dead. We serve a God that saved Jesus through death, well, brought Jesus through death for our salvation. He didn't save Jesus from dying. Jesus died, and it looked like the worst, and God raised him up. So the good news for us is as much as we want to distance ourselves from the pain points in our story, 
whether we're embarrassed, whether they're too much for us to be reminded of, tragically or traumatically, the loss is too great, the struggle was too painful, we cannot be separated from our story. But we serve a God who's not yet done working on our story. And that is what's beautiful about serving our God. Amen? We also see that Naomi acknowledges her pain and her disappointment with God and before God. Think of all the time in the narration. I mean, this is a really long journey. These, Naomi has walked from Judah to Moab, and then where we pick up in the story, she's started the journey back. This isn't like us driving down to Pueblo. This is not an hour. This is days, likely weeks, of these women walking. These women have shared grief. They have shared loss. There is no doubt that they, they couldn't not share of their pain and their disappointment and all that they've lost. I mean, Naomi lost her husband and her son. And this is her daughter-in-law who lost her son and her, her husband and her father-in-law. They have all of this time, and there's no way that they wouldn't have been talking about it. And we even hear in the narration of the story, we can sense Naomi's bitterness, her grief, her disappointment, her struggle. And here's what's weird. She doesn't sugarcoat it at all. She doesn't try and protect Ruth and Orpah. You know what happens? Somehow, miraculously, Ruth chooses to make Naomi's God her own God. I mean, think of how astounding this is. Naomi is, her life has been destroyed by tragedy, and she's vocal about it. God has turned his hand against me. She's disappointed. She even claims that she is now bitter. And something in her honesty and something in the way that she lived with this God, in spite of being disappointed by him, actually drew Ruth to serve the same God. That is beautiful. I think one of the messages for us today is we don't have to hide, suppress, sugarcoat our frustrations, our disappointments with God. God can handle it. God can handle it. I know that it feels unnatural. We live in a society where we control so much, like the air conditioning that is way too cold right now. (laughs) But we have the resources in our lives to control so much that when we come up against something we can't control, we don't know how to handle it. A hundred years ago, people were much more comfortable with grief and loss and things happening because they were used to controlling less. And now because we do control so much with our money, with our climate, with, our, with what we watch on our phones, our computers, our television, like we control so much of our lives that we're fooled into thinking we control all of it. And then when things happen to us we cannot control, we don't know what to do. So I'm here this morning to liberate you. It is okay to be frustrated and disappointed even with God. And here's the daring thing I'm going to say. I think the people around us, including our children, including unbelievers, our colleagues, need to see us wrestle with God. It's okay to share with them, these things have happened and I'm upset about it. 
And I don't know why. God, why would you let this happen to me? That's okay. You know what God doesn't do? He doesn't come down and speak and defend himself. He doesn't intervene and interject some miraculous happenstance to re-engage their faith. He acts through Ruth. Ruth's presence becomes the greatest gift to Naomi of God's faithfulness. And Ruth's presence to her is actually what ends up turning her life around. We want God to intervene. We want God to give us answers. We want God to fix everything as we snap our fingers. And almost never does that happen. But God shows up, and he shows up in the people around us. God allows them to have their thoughts and to have their feelings. God just acts, and he acts through Ruth. Let's finish reading the story, and then I'm going to bring it to a close with a few things that I think are helpful to us in the greatest stressful most tragic times of our lives, but let's finish reading the story. Verse 15. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be married. Buried, excuse me. Very different. Those words are very different. <laughs> you, you just needed to wake up. <laughs> very bad joke I was about to make. May the, Lord, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Naomi, it's probably a footnote in your Bible, means pleasant. So she's saying, don't call me pleasant. I left here pleasant, but now call me Mara. Mara means bitter, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Just a side note here. The irony is that she says, I went away full. She actually left. Why? Because there was a famine. She didn't leave full. What she means is she left hopeful. And she came back full, but despairing. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. She's speaking of her inner being. Her heart, her soul is empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. And there is a glimmer of hope for the rest of the book. Ruth doesn't try and change Naomi. She doesn't argue with her. She doesn't even try to console her. She just chooses to be faithfully present to her. And don't get it twisted. The message of this story is not that we should have blind loyalty and faithfulness to every person, church, situation, job that we encounter. That's not, that's not the point. The point is that God can do more through our faithful presence than we could ever do with our ideas, 
our words or our actions alone. That God ends up doing more through Ruth's presence to Naomi than, than Ruth ever could have done, trying to argue, trying to fix her, trying to argue on behalf of God to change her. And it's beautiful to watch Naomi change throughout the story as the people around her accept her and act in faithfulness toward her. But her change doesn't happen immediately. We're going to talk starting next, next week with chapter 2. We're going to get into more of the story about circumstantially what actually changes. But the end of chapter 1 ends with just a glimmer of hope. The barley harvest is beginning, but it's still been tragedy through and through for these ladies. So in closing, in about the next five, six minutes, I want to ask the question, how can we live open to God when, most, when life is most difficult? How can we live open, postured open to God when life is most difficult? First, I think the glaring message here is look for God's work in unlikely places, in unlikely people. The contrast between Moab and Judah is stark here. She is led to Moab to find provision, physical provision, when there is a famine. That's the unlikely place, the unlikely people. A woman who never would have known Yahweh, apart from Naomi's life, actually becomes the greatest gift of Yahweh to her. Unlikely people. Who are the unlikely people in our lives that we would never say it, but we really think there's no way they could teach me anything about God? There's no way God has a message to me through that person. There's no way God is actually at work in their lives on my behalf. It's impossible. They're not saved. And I know that we would probably never say that, but oftentimes we live that way. We live as if we are the hero to everyone else's story. And when we're in need, we would prefer to back up, to isolate, because we don't trust that God really is at work all around us all the time. So often we want God to remove us from situations and supernaturally intervene. But what happens most often? What happens most often is God gives us the gift of people to be with us through the difficulties. Number two, how can we live open to God when life is most difficult? Acknowledge your pain and disappointment. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God. I can't remember if I've already mentioned this in this message. That's the thing. Preaching two messages, it all runs together. I have no idea what I've said. But what did God choose to call his people in the Old Testament? Israel. Do you know what Israel means? I know you do, so don't say it. It doesn't mean ones full of faith. It doesn't mean people who act in love. It doesn't mean righteous ones. It means one who wrestles with God. Like what an odd thing for God to call his people unless he seriously is not afraid of us wrestling with him. 
what if God actually wants to heal us by us acknowledging our disappointments, our frustrations, our pains, our difficulties, first to him in prayer? I think deep down we all know that's true, but we're scared to actually do it because we don't really trust the character of God. We don't really trust that if I tell him how I really feel, that he's not going to smite me from the earth. I want to encourage you, be honest with yourself and be honest with God because he's the only one that can do anything about it. He's the only one that can bring healing to those deep, dark wounds, the places that of loss, the places where we've messed up and we're ashamed, the places where we're broken. Because if we don't acknowledge them and we don't acknowledge them before God, they'll come out as poison in our lives. We may not think it, but they'll come out as poison and other people will taste it. Bitterness, as Naomi says. Number three, how can we live open to God when life is most difficult? Lean on the people around you. Lean on the people around you. The temptation when life is awful is to isolate. And I think there's probably a dozen or more reasons, but one of those is because we're embarrassed and we're ashamed of the difficulty, even if we didn't cause it. There's some lie deep down that we actually believe we did something to cause it. Some sin in our life, some sin in our family, some choice we made 20 years ago. Whether that's true or not, the greatest thing we need when we're going through the difficulties in life is to be with people who truly care about us and who will be faithful to us and allow us to be ourselves. Do not isolate. Lean on the people around you. And last, what do we do? How, how can we live a life open to God when life is most difficult? Keep going. Keep going. Life is a journey. Almost nothing positive in our lives change in an instant. You know, one of the things Chris Green says that, that has stuck with me for years is a lot of things can happen at an altar call. Christian character is not one of them. A lot of things can happen at the altar, but Christian character is not one of them. Being the kind of people who are truly faithful to God from the inside out happens over a life of living with God through ups and downs, living with other people through their ups and downs. Keep going. Keep going. Do not stop. Do not allow the tragedies, the disappointments, the frustrations to sideline you. Keep walking. If you don't have faith, it doesn't matter. Come into this place and be around people who do have faith. I don't care if you sit in the back and sit down and cross your arms during worship. Be around people who are praying. Be around people who love the Lord, who have been through difficulties and have come back around. This is a safe place. Don't isolate and don't turn inward. Here's what I mean by that. I was talking through this with Bonnie just a minute ago. And then Seth, if you would come, my friend. Or I was talking with her about this yesterday. And she said, you know, think about the story and how much walking they do to and from places. Get outside. I think there is such a temptation to just turn to technology, to be 
to absorb in the television, in our phones, in our computers. So many of our jobs are governed by technology. And the difficulty with those things is they're not curses. They're gifts in so many ways of life. But they allow us to be connected without being. They allow us to be at church without being at church. They allow you to have connection with people without being with people. They allow you to shop without going shopping. They detach us from our physical bodies, from the physical creation. When we're going through struggles and difficulties in life, get outside, be around people, keep going, look at the mountains, walk, go on walks. And I can tell you this, it may not happen the first time, but in the course of time, you will be put in touch with the transcendence of God. And you will be reminded that this story started long before you, and it's gonna go on long after you. And we truly are blessed to be engrafted and brought into the story. Keep going, my friends. Maybe you're in a season right now, and you're like, man, cool message. I'm on a mountaintop, fantastic. Someone on your row is not. And another season in life, you might not be on the same mountaintop. And I don't mean that as a pessimistic message. I mean that as a truthful message of the way life works. We all go through situations. And hopefully, if you are on a mountaintop, you can be someone, someone else in this family can lean on and cling to. Let's stand together, prepare our hearts to come to the table of the Lord. I'm going to read a few verses from Psalm 146, the same verses as our call to worship this morning. Starting in verse 5, Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose help is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be like Ruth in chapter one, not yet to chapter four. And you're rolling in and you're bitter, you're hurting and you're broken. You may not be, but if you are, I bet it's hard to believe that these words are true. And yet this is who God is. And here is the Christian hope. As we come to this table, the Christian hope is that wherever you're at, God is not done working. He's not done working. Your story isn't over. The situation, though it looks to be done and finished, it's not. Because we serve a God who raises the dead. We serve a God who brings life from death, gives beauty for ashes, and brings joy when we've been mourning all night long. Let's prepare our hearts and come forward out of the left side of your row. Receive the elements, go back to your seat, and then we will partake together in just a moment. Come to the table of the Lord.
you're still wrestling with both God and your communion packet. <laughs> I want to I remind you of the last verse of chapter 1. Chapter 1 is tragedy after tragedy after tragedy, and I just preached on it. Hopefully you didn't forget. But the last verse, so Naomi returned to Moab accompanied by Ruth, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. This is a sign. The barley harvest is beginning. This is a sign that God is doing more than you can see. God is at work in your life in ways that you are unaware of and likely you will die unaware of and we will know in eternity. Wherever you are at, this is the body of Christ broken for you. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with his disciples. He took the bread, he, broke, he blessed it, he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Let us take and eat. Church, break this in your hand and let us receive the body of Christ. same way after supper he took the cup saying this is the cup of the new covenant and my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me church let us receive the blood of Christ shed for you and me for a new future for all of us together take and drink amen let us sing the song of the Lord the song of doxology reminding us that every good gift comes from God above. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye. Thank you for worshiping together with us today as the body of New Life Midtown. I bless you to go in the peace of Christ as faithful witnesses of the God that we serve, who is still working on your behalf and on behalf of every person you will encounter this week. Go in the peace of the Lord. Amen.